everyone. Welcome to Women's Sports Central. I'm Brenda Van Lingen along with Michelle Vopel and it is Friday, April 19th and uh, we haven't had an opportunity to get together, Michelle and I, to uh, talk well, we, we've gotten together to talk to each other, but we haven't been able to share our, our thoughts uh, with those of you that listen to this podcast uh, for a while. So we're going to use today's show to uh, uh, put a bow on the college basketball season and, and reflect back on the uh, WNBA draft and uh, things that have happened this past week and uh, just wrap that all up before we look ahead to uh, uh, the next set of events, the WNBA and other things that will be happening this spring and summer. So, Michelle, thank you uh, for joining me once again. You and I had fun down in New Orleans, and uh, it was uh, it was another great basketball season. Now in the rearview mirror. Yes, it was, um, and it had some twists and turns that we were not expecting. Um, well, most people weren't expecting. Brenda, if I recall right, in our last show, I think we predicted a Baylor upset and a Louisville Cal Notre Dame UConn final. Uh, yeah, do, I think do you remember that, or maybe? Yeah, oh gosh, maybe I'm getting confused with what I think. I wish I was <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if one of the two. Hopefully, nobody will go back and listen to the last podcast because uh, okay, it's it's my turn to say yep, I completely blew it as we were previewing the regionals uh i discounted the louisville baylor matchup so much that i don't even think we talked about it and that's on me and uh uh you know kudos to louisville for their huge upset but uh you know it was it was a breakthrough for cal to make it to their first women's final four to uh, louisville for their upset of baylor and then to continue that on all the way to the national championship giving hope to teams from here on, uh, you know, talking about how seemingly insurmountable odds teams can overcome. But let's let's start our conversation with the the national champion, uh, the way that UConn put their run together in the tournament was uh, was so impressive as uh, all the individuals that made up what they did, but especially the freshman breaking out, Brianna Stewart. I think it uh, really shows you how powerful it is when you have a program that has so much institutional knowledge about how you play well in the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean Gina Orama and uh, Chris Daly and Shea Ralph in particular, Shea Ralph having actually played and won a national championship at UConn. Those folks were really able to, um, I-, I think, get this team's confidence back when it had taken a a pretty big hit when they lost that Big East championship game to Notre Dame because Mm -hmm. UConn is just not used to losing at all uh, and certainly not used to losing to the same opponent as much as they'd lost to Notre Dame. And to to lose the games in the fashion that they'd lost them, I remember, you know, watching the end of that Big East championship game where – UConn didn't execute well at the end of the game, and mm-hmm. Skyler Diggins got a steal and then navigated her way down court, found Natalie Achonwa for the uh, for the layup. And the, the, the UConn kids' faces, they were just crushed. Some of them were crying, and you could just tell their confidence had really taken a hit. At the, after the national championship game, uh, the UConn players talked about the fact that Gino Oriamas 
told them after the game, look, you know, we can still win a national championship. We can still do this. He didn't go in there and scream at them. He knew at that point they needed a confidence boost. Hmm. And then we saw that team play great. Mm-hmm. Not just Brianna Stewart, although she was fantastic. Mm-hmm. One of the best freshman performances, you know, on par with a Cheryl Miller, um, with Samika Holtzclaw. Um, I think it wasn't just her. It was the entire team. Everybody played well. Right. Everybody was confident. All the things that all year long, the little the little issues that UConn might have been having, and they are really little a lot of times in comparison to other teams, all those things were cleaned up. And so that's what you saw. You saw a program that knows how to win championships. Right. Win a championship. And and we heard from several players, and we've heard this over the years. Uh, Maya Moore talked about it, and and probably players before her, uh, but it was reiterated by members of this team that Gino Ariema, when he coaches his team, he makes them feel like they're the worst team from November to March first, but then through the NCAA tournament, he makes them believe that they are the best team. And there's just that collective, we've been through this together, we have, we've gone through all these things, and, and I've had the opportunity for the last seven, actually eight, women's Final Fours to be in the practices at the Final Four as I work in the production truck for ESPN behind the scenes. And the way that he conducts his practices is different than everybody else. And I, I appreciate the opportunity just to see that. Uh, because there is just a, a demand uh, and focus and attention to detail that others don't reach that high of a level. And it's very impressive. And um, you can see how it translates into those things that I just talked about, that the, the team completely believed that they could win this championship and not only believed it, but everybody understanding their role executed it to perfection uh, through the whole tournament, but most impressively in those big games in the Final Four. And Chris Daly gets a, a lot of credit. Gino Oriama really stressed how much credit that she should get in uh, his press conference that we had on Monday before the championship game because he said, you know, we've we've been doing this a long time. They They took over at UConn in 1985. We were still in college, Brenda. That's how long. I mean, it seems like a different life. That's a long time okay? ago. <laughs> That's when Gino took over and he hired Chris as his assistant. So those two have been working together now, um, you know, for that length of time to still be hungry, to still understand, you know, hey, this we've done this a million times, but every set of kids, it's new for them. We have to keep it fresh and alive for them and, and understand how they need to be taught, but he gave her a lot of credit and, and, you know, you and I knowing Chris have no problem believing that he said, you know, she is as strict on the rules, you know, on the principles that we set up as she was on the first day we took over the job. Hmm. And he kind of joked, you know, he's like, sometimes, you know, I, I get a little looser than she is, but she, you know, keeps that ship really tight. And I think they've had such a great working dynamic. They have different personalities, but they have the same vision for how they want a basketball team to play, how they need their kids to act, 
how they, you know, tell them how to deal with the media. You know, I always say it's a very professionally run organization. That's Mm -hmm. why those kids transition so well to the pros. They've already been acting in all the best ways like professionals Mm -hmm. in college. So I, I admire that Gino really makes a point of giving Chris Daly her due. Um, And and I think you can't overestimate what it's like, you know, like for years, Bill Guthridge was right-hand man for Dean Smith at North Carolina. Having that person who shares your vision and maybe has a little bit different personality, but if you're the head coach and you ever get a little off track, there's always that person there who's going to you know, who's, who's still, if you will, you know, they're the ones that are going to make the trains run on time. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I admire him that he gives her so much credit, but I do think she's been a big, big part of this whole Yukon story. It, it, there's no question in my mind that Gino would say they wouldn't have done what they've done if she hadn't been along, you know, for the entire ride too. Yeah. I appreciate you giving her her due because so often assistant coaches don't get that recognition. And I think she deserves it. Uh, as well as so many around the country as far as how they support their head coach. But the longevity, the loyalty, the all of the things that you just said are such an important part of it. And so now as we you know look ahead as far as UConn, uh, you know, I don't think I will ever uh, say that anybody is a lock <laughs> or a heavy favorite for a national championship again. I've learned my lesson. Uh, but, uh, you know, you have to believe with the youth on this team, uh, with Kalena Mosqueda Lewis and Brianna Stewart and uh, and Dolson, all of those players coming back. Wow, uh, they they are certainly the prohibitive favorite, uh, and and for this train to continue rolling on. And yeah, they really are. They they're losing Kelly Ferris, who had who also had a very very good NCAA tournament. Uh, you know, we'll talk later about the the WNBA draft. Mm-hmm. She's going to be staying not very far from where she's been. So, um, yeah. you know, she she's picked up by Connecticut. They're losing her, but they do have all these other pieces back. And I think the things that Kelly Ferris did, you might not find one player who does all those things, but as a collective effort, I think they can they can replicate that. You know, um, the things that she brought, other people can all pick up a little piece of that. So they are, they are definitely the team. Everybody's, I think they're going to be a hundred, you know, everybody's going to pick them number one, and they're going to be carrying that weight then of being mm-hmm. the defending champions, the, the team expected. We talk about what Chris Daly meant and has meant to UConn. Holly Warlick was that same person for pretty much the same amount of time mm-hmm. at, at Tennessee. And then, you know, unfortunately with the circumstances with, with coach Pat summit, Holly was put in that position, you know, to be head coach. I have a feeling she never would have, you know, if, if Pat had coached to a hundred, Holly would have, you know, stayed right there with her, but in, it, instead it became her program. And I feel like this, this was a really good year for Holly. Yes. Um, you know, they didn't make the final four, which was, which was tough. Those kids really wanted to make a final four. But I saw some differences, and, and I'm sure, you know, you being the X's and O's guru, you saw that too, Brenda, mm-hmm. with some of the different things that, that Tennessee did this year. They are, uh, they lose Kamika Williams and Tabor Spaney, but they're bringing in the number one recruit in the country, Mercedes Russell. Mm-hmm. And the final four is in the Nashville. smack dab middle of Tennessee next year. Yes, it is. So it could be a really special year next year for Tennessee under Holly Warlick. I think they're going to be a very good team. I, I'd say top three in the country. And, you know, they have, they have that goal of 
hey, we haven't been to the Final Four for Tennessee, and it's a little while. You know, it's since 2008, and we've got a Final Four in our home state. Yes, you know all the Lady Vol fans are, are looking forward to that for sure. And let, let's let's step back, and you mentioned the expectation and the uh, the the expectation that Connecticut will be the number one team next year, and the expectations surrounding Baylor this year. And uh, they were the defending national champion with the best player in the country in Brittany Griner, and, and some would say the second best in Odyssey Sims. But running into that situation uh, against Louisville in the Sweet 16 in Oklahoma City, um, you know, uh, we it's been talked about a lot. But the the fact that the game plan they put together was the only way, probably, or one of the only ways that you could potentially beat Baylor, and then to actually execute it and make 16 three pointers and answer the call every time needed. Uh, Louisville pulled off the, the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history. But as you look at Baylor and the career of Brittany Griner, uh, her teams made it to two women's Final Fours during her time, won one national championship. Um, how do you think, as we look historically on her career, uh, that, that, that she'll be evaluated as far as uh, – the, the team aspect and, and Baylor's success while Brittany was there. It's interesting, Brenda, that there's always good and bad in, uh, I think sometimes in being the, uh, the more well-known quantity, if you will, simply because the, the media attention now with women's basketball, with message boards and Twitter and Facebook and, games on television, there's so much more known about Brittany's career and, and careers of any of the women's basketball players now, as opposed to even 20 years ago when Dawn Staley was playing. Dawn Staley was a guard. She wasn't a center, but she was the dominant player in women's college basketball in the 1991 and 1992 seasons. She was the player of the year both those seasons, and she was on very good teams. Mm-hmm. Um she was on teams with the Birch Twins, with Tammy Reese, with Dina Evans, um, Audra Smith. There were some, I mean, these were, mm-hmm. these were complete teams. They were very, very good teams. And they went to the Final Four three years in a row, and they didn't win any of them. You look back at some great Georgia teams in different generations. Georgia's been to five Final Fours, and that includes players like Teresa Edwards, uh, like Katrina McLean, Saudi Roundtree, they didn't. Have, Georgia's never won a national championship, despite great players on great teams. Um, but you look at a player like Lisa Leslie, who I think anybody would say is is as accomplished a women's basketball player as there is. If you look at the entirety of her career, she never made a Final Four. She wasn't on great teams, mm-hmm. but she didn't even get that chance to be in a Final Four. So people maybe say, "Oh, okay, are you?" Are you trying to soften the blow for Brittany? That's really not what I'm, I'm doing. What I'm trying to say is there's a long, long, long list of great players who didn't win any. And Brittany won one. And people can say, well, she probably should have won three or whatever. Well, you know what? It's not so easy to even win one. Mm-hmm. It really isn't. And we kind of, you know, we kind of forget that. A lot of things kind of have to go your way. You have to play well at the right times. And sometimes you have to get 
a little lucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, you know, some coaches and players and fans sometimes don't really want to talk about that aspect because it's something they can't control. But sometimes it is a bounce here or a bounce there that that can make the difference. And you could even say in that Louisville game, Brian, the witch will go down as one of the oddest experiences I've had <laughs> only because I couldn't believe what was happening right in front of me. Right. You you took the hit for saying, oh, I said no, there was no way. I was right there with you. I didn't think there was any way Louisville was going to, you know, I, I, I could not have been more wrong about how that thing turned out. And watching the whole thing play out was surreal. I couldn't believe it was happening. And I kind of think Baylor was feeling the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I can, what? I thought we were already in New Orleans. <laughs> and they weren't. So... That, that, to me, kind of shows you how, even though you think, hey, everything was lined up for them to make it to New Orleans, you still have to go out and play the games. And it's, not as, it's never as easy as you think it is. So mm-hmm. people are like, oh, they should have won. They, they show all this kind of stuff. Well, I don't like that word. I hate that word. I hate that word choke. Mm-hmm. I really do. And mm-hmm. I know people use it, and I know, you know people say, oh, you're – Whatever you know, you're you're, uh, you're you're just making Baylor feel. But I'm not trying to make Baylor feel better. They should have won the game. There's no doubt about it. But right. it's not as easy as it sounds on paper. Hey, we've got the best team. We're number one. We're going to go win a national championship. Yeah. And and when a team just continues to make three pointer after three pointer, yeah. it was just it was incredible to watch. Yeah. And you know, you have to give credit to Louisville for the fight they had and the belief they had because, you know, you just, everybody believe. I think everybody watching the game except maybe the Louisville players believe the whole game that Baylor was going to come back and win at the end. And then going ahead and taking the lead with nine seconds, it was like, you know, they came back, they went ahead, and then to have, you know, the guts to take it at the at the rim and then to make those free throws to win the game. Louisville did absolutely everything they possibly could and so you know in some ways you look at that and you're like it it, I mean you have to absolutely give all the credit to Louisville in that situation and uh you know I I you know was I was not in the in the arena you were but talking to people there there was a sense early on that that maybe Baylor wasn't uh completely mentally ready for what they were being hit with um, you know, physically, defensively, or just those threes or whatever. But, you know, it takes um, – it just took so much effort to overcome what Louisville brought to the court that specific night uh, that uh, you just have to give all the credit to Louisville. So, um, you know, Baylor had a, a great season. It's so dominant in the Big 12 Conference the last several years. Uh, Brittany Griner had a great career, and we'll talk about uh, the WNBA draft in just a minute. But uh, – just uh, that was an amazing part of the tournament. And then you talk about, okay, so teams need breaks to win the tournament. You know, everybody else, UConn and Notre Dame specifically, when Baylor went out, their chances to win the national championship raised. And that's why, in some ways, I think for Notre Dame, uh, it has to be so disappointing as well. After beating UConn three times during the season, after being to two uh, women's uh, to two national championship games the years before for them to lose in the national semifinals and the way that they did uh, a disappointing end on a, a great career for Skylar Diggins and a great season for Notre Dame as well. 
And you can make all those names that I said before of great players who didn't win a championship. Mm-hmm. You can apply that to Skylar Diggins' career. And you can also apply the fact that Skylar Diggins, Brenda, reminds me of the Don Staley story in that that they beat their their nemesis. Virginia beat their nemesis at at. I don't want to say necessarily they beat them at the wrong time because they beat when when they beat with Virginia their nemesis was Tennessee, mm-hmm. and they only beat them once during Staley's career, and that one time was in the regional final in 1990 in Norfolk, Virginia, and it kept Tennessee from going to the final four they hosted. And That's Pat right. Summit said for years it was the worst defeat of her career, the most painful. And it's it's always weird when you can look back and say, you know, there's no way you could ever do that. Boy, if, if they could trade, I bet Virginia would trade that victory. They would let Tennessee go to a Final Four for the next year when they met in the national championship mm-hmm. game in 1991. And Virginia would say, you know what? We, we wish we win. would have won that overtime national championship game, and we have, you know, and lost the uh, the regional final to you, because then you guys would have been to your Final Four, and we would have won a national championship. <laughs> Sports doesn't work that way. No. Nope. And the reason I compare that to to uh, mm-hmm. Notre Dame is you look at the Notre Dame the last three seasons, Skylar Diggins, sophomore, junior, and senior year, and you ask yourself, what what more could they have done to win a national championship than they did? Her sophomore year, they became the first team ever in 2011 to beat UConn and Tennessee in the same NCAA tournament. Nobody had ever done that before. They mm-hmm. beat Tennessee in the regional final and then UConn in the semifinals. And then, of all things, really, to lose to a team that had never been to a Final Four before. Right. Played great. I mean, A&M deserved that championship. But still, if you're Notre Dame, you're like, golly, we beat UConn and Tennessee, and that still didn't get us a national championship. Right, yep. Last year, I think they were, you know, they beat uh, UConn, three of the four times they played them, including at the national semifinals, and they ran into what was a brick wall of Baylor. This year they beat UConn three times, and then the fourth time they ran into what was then the brick wall of UConn. Mm-hmm. So if you're Skylar Dickens, you're like, boy, the timing was off. <laughs> you know, we did everything right. We beat everybody pretty much that was, that was good or who could have challenged us. But it just never worked out to be those six victories in a row that you mm-hmm. need to win a national championship. Well, well documented, Michelle. That's that's fantastic, and that's a that's a good perspective on um, on the paths of these teams and Notre Dame in particular, and uh, just uh, puts a bow on uh, the two thousand and. Uh, 13 season and uh, did, did we give enough did we give enough props to, to cal brenda i guess that would be the other team we really do want to yeah, send props to Lindsay gottlieb and mm-hmm. this and this cal team because hallelujah for the pac-12 right. a final a final four team from their conference that wasn't named stanford mm-hmm. we've been writing about it for years and years and years and you know it had been since the, the since Cheryl Miller's USC teams in in '86. That right. was the last and you know Pac-12 school other than Stanford that had made it, and the first West Coast school since Long Beach State in the 1980s other than Stanford. So that's 
that's Brenda, that's literally the lifetime of these college students. Sure. A lot of people's lifetimes, they'd never seen any West Coast team other than Stanford make the women's final four. It's only as old people that can remember (laughs) when somebody else did it. And Cal did it. They had a wonderful, the team with a wonderful personality with some really fun kids. And they should be a team that everybody else looks at and says, okay, Cal made the breakthrough. What's stopping us? Mm-hmm. And you need teams like that in a Final Four. Yes. Um, and I will say this one last thing about Louisville. Louisville consolidated that victory. Okay, they didn't win a national championship, but they didn't stop at their big breakthrough victory. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they had to come right back, you know, after that big victory, that biggest upset ever, and beat Tennessee. And they did that solidly. Then they had the. Uh, the play, the game against Cal, where they were behind at halftime, mm-hmm. so they had to win a different way, and they did that. It's really important, I think, that those Louisville kids think about their season, and anybody watching them think about what that took to win those three games. You know, to win that fourth one was would have been epic. It would have been like <laughs> the, the women's version of NC State's run right. in 1983. So they fell a little short of that, but it was still a pretty glorious season. And that's a team that's bringing back, you know, uh, basically, you know, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they lose Monique Reed, but they're going to, they're bringing back really all their key players. And, and you know, that's, that's another team I think that's going to um, be, be really strong. And, uh, you know, also they're going to be after after a year they're going to be in the ACC. Mm-hmm. So we'll have we'll have that to talk about along with Notre Dame. How crazy is that going to be? Exactly, exactly. And and you're so right. And I mentioned this just briefly at the at the beginning of the show, but you know Cal's breakthrough and um, the the play of Lasia Clarendon. I mean, she really showed what an amazing player she is uh, on the biggest stage. And uh, and just their breakthrough to be that other team besides Stanford in so many years that has made it to the Final Four, and I, you you know so often um, there are complaints about women's basketball that the teams win that you expect to win and it's the four number one seeds that make it to the Final Four. Well, we had a year where that didn't happen, and uh, it shook things up, and it has to give. Uh, excitement to the sport and hope for teams around the country that, hey, we can be that Cal team. We can be that Louisville team and have that breakthrough. And uh, it was uh, just uh, not the final four we expected, but still uh, great storylines and and great uh, accomplishment for a lot of teams as, as we've talked about here. So as we then turn the page, uh, you know, so often during the course, well, during the course of the season, there was a theme of three to see, and uh, those that uh, watch basketball uh, all the time and know that there are a lot more players to see than just three may have gotten annoyed by that. But uh, you and I talked off the air before we got on this. It, it turned out it's turned out to be a great marketing campaign to raise the level of awareness for women's basketball, not only at the college level and those three, Brittany Griner, Elena Deladon, and Skylar Diggins throughout the course of their senior seasons, but also into the WNBA and what we all hope will help raise the level of um, viewership, sponsorships, awareness, uh, etc. related to the WNBA. And of course, those three went one, two, and three in the WNBA draft. 
which was really the genesis of that narrative. And, um, you know, obviously I work for ESPN.com. And as I told you, Brenda, I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to defend ESPN, um, but I am defending them because I think they were right in this. I totally get that for the for the big-time fans of women's basketball, they were like, oh, please stop hitting me over the head with three to see. But here's the, the you know, the, the, the reason why that's done is because when you have a narrative that you want a mainstream audience to follow, you need that narrative to be narrow, you know, to be something they can really grasp onto and then something that they can follow for a, a long arc of time. And that's why this one really was perfect. We, you know, as women's basketball followers knew, these would probably be three of the three top players in the WNBA draft. So when they came up with a three to C campaign, the idea was we're going to be able to promote women's basketball through these three kids from the very start of the college season all the way through opening day of the WNBA season. Mm-hmm. Of those of us who love both the college game and the WNBA, one of the things that's frustrated us is there's not that necessarily that synergy that you would think would be absolutely organic and automatic between mm-hmm. the two. It doesn't always happen. You have college fans that just aren't into the WNBA. Believe it or not, there's some WNBA fans that aren't even that into college. Mm-hmm. And we always thought, you know, you need to have that, you know, that back and forth between the two of them, that the whole time you're watching the college season, you're thinking about the WNBA. Mm-hmm. And the whole time you're watching the WNBA, you're thinking, okay, who's going to be joining us next year? You had that perfect arc this year with these three. And so to me, that's a great thing in terms of the big picture of women's basketball. And it's a great thing for the casual fan. Mm-hmm. And I know that that sometimes is frustrating for the, for the, you know, the 365-day-a-year fan. But there are people out there who don't, you know, they don't watch the women's game, but, you know, except for periodically. Mm-hmm. So if you can plant some names in their heads so they know who Brittany Griner is, they know who Skylar Diggins is, they know who Elena Deladon is, that is how the game grows. Mm-hmm. The rest of us would might be like, ah, oh, I've heard enough. Guess what? <laughs> Deal with it. It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. Mm-hmm. We still covered tons. We wrote tons of stories. Uh, there was tons of games broadcast. If the three to C got a little overwhelming, just remind yourself this was this was a marketing narrative that was for the good of the women's game as a whole. And that's to me, it it worked really well. And quite frankly, yeah, and quite frankly, we all need that. Uh, You know, those of us that are fans of women's sports, uh, you know, continuing to work to raise the profile of women's sports, women's basketball, WNBA, whatever, in the eyes of the general public. We we know that there there are still a lot of people that uh, aren't interested or just haven't taken a look who would be interested if they did. And and that ultimately results in. not as many sponsorship dollars or revenue generated to continue to grow the sport to the level that we all believe it deserves to be at. Uh, viewership, television viewership is so huge. Uh, 
you know, as I, as I mentioned, I was in all the production meetings uh, for the Women's Final Four uh, relative to ESPN broadcast. And, you know, some of the first things that are talked about uh, at the beginning of the meeting are always ratings. And it's such a big deal that the more we generate interest in women's sports for not those of us that are just passionate and fervent about it, for but for all sports fans, um, it, it's a good thing. And so I, I think this is... Uh, a good thing. And we can talk about those three specifically and some of the efforts around those, but let's talk about the draft overall, Michelle, real quickly in that, you know, uh, the answer to the trivia question, who was drafted behind the three to see will be the, uh, an answer that uh, a lot of people will be asked over the years, Taylor Hill, of course, of Ohio state to the Washington mystics. And then Kelsey bone, a player who uh, could have stayed around for another year of eligibility but chose to go to her professional career, uh, was picked fifth, Kelsey Bone, to the New York Liberty. So there are some interesting stories there. Tiana Hawkins with Maryland. Tony Young, uh, a player for Oklahoma State that may not have been on a lot of people's radars around the country, but an incredible athlete, and her upside uh, is unlimited in some ways. I'm really interested to see what her potential professional career looks like. And then uh, going on down the list, uh, Lasia Clarendon, we talked about what a great Final Four and tournament and career she had. She was chosen by the Fever. Kelly Ferris going to be going, uh, staying near home with the Connecticut Sun. And then, uh, and I'm skipping over a few just to highlight them, but Lindsay Moore from the University of Nebraska becoming uh, the second uh, first round draft pick in uh, Nebraska history. So some good stories down the list in the WNBA draft. I didn't, I, I felt like for the most part, the teams did as well as they could based on what their position was in the draft, what they needed and what players were available. Um, there are some teams I thought did that did better than others, but it wasn't like some drafts in the past where you had some first round picks that you just said, "What in the world is going on here? Mm-hmm. You know, do you did you feel like not showing up this year, or what's you know what's the deal?" Um, it didn't feel like that at all. It felt like everybody was very prepared. Everybody had a game plan. They had backup game plans, which you have to have when you're drafting. And and for the most part, probably did as well as they could, again, based on who was available and what positions they had. That said, I think the New York Liberty had a spectacular draft, and they had positions to have a spectacular draft. But I was really, um, you know, I was interested in hearing Bill Lambeer after the draft was over saying that they'd targeted Tony Young for months. Hmm. So they were really on her early in early in this her senior season. And she's somebody, Brenda, you and I saw and know her background story. She's very, uh, she's very funny and self-effacing talking about it. She basically says, I was a knucklehead. You know, I when I came here, I thought I knew everything. I'd only been playing basketball a couple of years. I didn't know how to play hard. I didn't know how to practice hard. I didn't have commitment, but I thought I had all those things. And Kurt Bucky and Miranda Serna, you know, both – guided me and kept telling me, you know, if you really get it, if you really learn, you know, to commit yourself, you're going to be a professional player. You're that good. And when the two of them passed away in the plane crash in November of 2011, Tony took it very hard. The whole team did, but she realized, hey, these were two people that believed in me Mm -hmm. and now I don't have them anymore. And I need to play 
to honor their memory. And, you know, I, you couldn't help but think that night of the draft. Hmm. I know I thought it when her name got called, you know, in the first round, I thought, you know, hmm. the two people that would have been the most, had the biggest grins when this happened would have been Kurt and Miranda. And it, it, it really, it was just sort of a, a very sweet moment for her to realize that they were right. You know, they did believe in her. Um, and they did keep telling her, you know, uh, you can do this, but you're going to have to recognize that you're not <laughs> as good as you think you are and you're not working as hard as you think you are. And that she realized that too. Great, great story on draft night. Another great story I thought was Lindsay Moore. You know, she's a kid we watched in the in the Big 12 when Nebraska was still in the Big 12. And, you know, she was able to uh, really, I think, absolutely maximize her senior year. Mm-hmm. And it was something that the WNBA coaches noticed and talked about, that, that they really believed in her as a decision maker. Now she's going to be an apprentice to uh, to Lindsey Whalen yeah. if she makes the team, which right. I think she has a good chance to. What could be a better situation for her? Yeah, you know, in terms of learning for, from somebody that we all have thought. I, I don't. I think you probably thought this too, not just because they have the same name spelled differently, <laughs> but we all thought if there was somebody that you thought, okay, hey, you know, if, if Lindsey Moore has somebody she can model herself after to be a pro player, it would be mm-hmm. somebody like Lindsey Whalen. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Great stories all up and down, and and I'm glad I'm glad you highlighted those. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, with the 11 player rosters, how many of uh, the round two and round three draft picks actually make any teams. But uh, uh, it's uh, as we go back to the, those those top three and the three to see, uh, the Phoenix Mercury have already started a a, a, a huge uh, marketing campaign around Brittany Griner's Chicago Sky. You know, you you hope that Elena Deladon's presence there will uh, lift um, that the uh, post-high school, because there's such great high school players in Chicago. It's such a great um, hotbed for um, generating basketball talent, but there, there has never really been the interest post-high school in the greater Chicago area, and I hope that that changes with Elena Deladon and and the attention being given there. And then you you and I both know that Tulsa, with the, the shift to from Detroit to Tulsa a few years ago and all the players leaving, they've struggled. And, uh, you know, having a, a marquee player like Skylar Diggins there to shine the spotlight there, they're just such tremendous possibilities, I think, with the marketing ca- campaigns around these three you know, uh, around these three franchises. And I'm, I'm just, I'm interested to see how that all carries over into interest uh, this summer. Yeah, I think Elena Deladon is the perfect piece needed um, for the Chicago Sky because they've been knocking on the door of getting in the playoffs. If everybody's able to stay healthy, which is important because both Epiphany Prince and Sylvia Fowles have struggled with some health issues. But if those two... Um, who've been the, the top scoring threats or were the top scoring threats for Chicago. If they're able to stay healthy, you've still got Swin Cash, um, who is a great mentor figure. And Elena Deladon mentioned Swin Cash, in fact, um, which, right after the draft, talking about she was looking forward to, to working with her. Um, I think you've, you've got the pieces in place for a, a play, not just a playoff team, but a playoff run. Mm-hmm. So that would be really nice for that Chicago franchise. I also think that there's a good 
chance for Tulsa to make the playoffs if everything comes together. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people who were saying, oh, you know, Skylar Diggins is too big a personality and too big a star. Boy, it's too bad she's in a market like Tulsa. You know, and as a Midwesterner, I'm just like, oh, (laughs) come on. (laughs) Although I do have to say really quickly, I've heard people say, oh, Oklahoma's not the Midwest. It's the Southwest. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Right. (laughs) I claim Oklahoma as part of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. If they don't want to claim they're part of the Midwest, okay, they can say they're Southwest. They're close enough. I mean, it's four hours from my house, right? Right. So I think it's part of the Midwest. Um, I think it's great to have Skylar. Um, in this market, because this market is, has been really hopeful of having somebody who, who somebody big who wants to play there, because mm-hmm. apparently Liz Cambage doesn't. Nice. So they they want that star. And when you look at, uh, I don't make a lot of comparisons to the NBA, but I think this is a good one. Yeah, Oklahoma City. Yes. Has ended up being a great market for Kevin Durant. Absolutely. You know, he's the biggest, you know, he's the biggest pro sports star in the entire state. And a state that for many years didn't have professional sports. You know, University of Oklahoma was their, was their professional sports, <laughs> uh, uh, basically sports team, Oklahoma football and men's basketball. Mm-hmm. But um, now to have the thunder and to have that attention, you know, Durant's been a, a big star there and that hasn't lessened his national stardom no. I, you know I, I always want to point that out to people okay he plays in Oklahoma City but everybody knows who he is yes. he's an NBA star in Oklahoma City Oklahoma City is not that much different than Tulsa they're not that far apart no. they're not you know it's it's um so I think the fan base at Tulsa if this team is good, you know, I see fans being excited and being loyal to that team when that team was god-awful terrible. <laughs> if that team is good, you're going to have people come out, and you're going to have a nice fan base. Yes. And I think Skyler gets that. At yes. least, if nothing else, she was sure saying the right things. She wasn't hanged. Or she wasn't, oh, boy, I sure wish I would have gone one spot earlier where I could be in Chicago an hour and a half from where I grew up. She wasn't saying any of that. She was like, hey, Tulsa Shock. I'm excited. It's my chance. I can't wait to go there. I really, really admired the way that she dealt with that. I'm sure she probably wanted to go to Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it would make sense. Why wouldn't she want to go to Chicago? Right. It's, it's closer. It's a big city. But she didn't show any of that. She showed nothing but enthusiasm for Tulsa. Rebecca Lobo pointed that out, and I thought it was really big. Rebecca said, I'm excited to see somebody excited about <laughs> Tulsa. <laughs> yes. So I yes. thought that was great. And then, of course, Brittany Griner is, I think, going to be so, so beloved in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. She's going to be with a team where she doesn't have to carry that team. She's got tons of scoring options and a fan base that knows her story and is ready to embrace her story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And let's let's wrap up with that, the fact that uh, uh, with Brittany Griner and all of her interviews, she has been very open about her sexuality. She has uh, really embraced the anti-bullying campaign. And, you know, when you think about what she has endured as a college athlete, um, you know, with all the just nasty things that adults have said to her uh, during the course of her time, whether I'm sure extending back to high school, but in college especially, you know the 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 whole idea of our anti of an anti bullying campaign um and 
reaching out to kids about how they speak to others and how they treat others with respect. Uh, you know, Brittany's had to endure it from uh, immature, inappropriate adults. And I'm, I'm really proud of her standing up and being who she is and also being a part of a campaign that says, you know, we need to be kind to people. We need to be nice to people and we need to uh, be okay with who, who they are and, so, and be supportive. And if you're going to be a fan of another team, cheer for your team and don't be nasty to somebody on another team because they're different from you. And uh, I'm just I'm really proud of uh, Brittany Griner. I've had a chance to see her over the course of her career. I I'm really honored to have broadcast uh, 28 of her games during the course of her career and uh, to see the woman that she's become and what she stands for uh, is is really impressive. And like you said, uh, I think the people in Phoenix will just really embrace her and and what she stands for. Yeah, I, I absolutely think they will. And I think that would have been the case in any of the WNBA markets. Uh, I like this particular market because I happen to be, um, I can't remember what year it was, a, a few years ago. I'm thinking it was during the it was during either the 2007 or 2009 um, Phoenix Championship runs. And I happened to um, go out to dinner with a big group of X-Factor fans. That's what the Phoenix, the, the diehards um, Phoenix call the fan base, the X-Factor. And so I was at this restaurant with this huge group of fans. And at some point I really noticed, I looked around me and there were people of every, pretty much every race. There were gay people, there were straight people, there were men, there were women, there were black people, there were white people, there were brown people, there were (laughs) every type of person, every person. And they were all unified as Phoenix Mercury fans. Hmm. And I thought to myself, you know, this is a beautiful picture of, what sports does to bring people together. Everybody here has such different backgrounds and stories and life histories, and yet they're a hundred percent together mm-hmm. rooting for the mercury. And I, and so that's why I think that's that fan base is just going to be so, you just couldn't find a better fan base really mm-hmm. um, to, to, for, for her to go to that, that is so um, welcoming and, and is so uh, diverse. What Brittany Griner is talking about right now is stuff that really needs to be talked about mm-hmm. because Brittany's been open about her sexuality. She actually, you know, talked about that Monday when there was a, there was a, a lunch at ESPN.com or at ESPN.com's offices, so ESPNW lunch. And I happened to be there and uh, along with several uh, ESPN employees and all the draft picks. And Brittany got up in front of everybody and she just said, you know, I, bullying is something I had to deal with. And I had moments when I was in junior high school where it was very painful. And I asked myself at times, why am I here? And she started to tear up and the entire room was just like, everybody really empathized because you can imagine we've all, I I think most people at some point in their life are not the cool kid, (laughs) you know, or, or have that, that moment where, um, you know, they do feel picked upon or marginalized, but imagine what it was like for her at her size. And she said, you know, I have, I have a deep voice and I'm big and I, I don't, you know, I I like to wear bow ties and suspenders and, and jeans. And she likes to dress in a way that she's comfortable in and she's gay. And she talked about all of this things. And she said, I didn't want to hide who I was and try to pretend I was somebody different 
But being who I was made me a target. And so I had to learn to face that. I think it was incredibly, incredibly moving for everybody in that room. Mm. And then what I really loved was that you saw other people step forward. People who, and I, and I think it's important to point this out, Brenda, people who um, maybe look more traditionally feminine, Skylar Diggins, Elena Deladon, they are wearing nice dresses and they, they look very pretty and they're the traditional. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. They're very comfortable in that. But they were stepping forward, especially Skylar Diggins said this, which I, I thought was so meaningful. They, they both did. I don't, they both were wonderful talking about Brittany. But Skylar said, we don't want Brittany to bring the ball up the court because she's not a guard. She's a center. We want her to be what she is as a center. It's the same way with who she is in her sexuality and her, her gender expression and how she dresses. We don't want her to be somebody that she's not. We want her to be who she is. What a marvelous message, you know, to come, especially from sort of, you know, the the poster girl of the it girl, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, that Skylar is, that Skylar's like, hey, I'm who I am. And it's great. Everybody embraces me. Embrace Brittany, you know, for who she is. So I thought that was wonderful. And I think it's important, really important. And I'll say this delicately, but I need to say it. The Baylor community, that is a Baptist school. That is a school that has a background, that has a, you know, that part of their, their charter. Um, I think they have to look at some of the things that, that, you know, have been said, said on message boards, said about people, and say, look, this is a, a hero we have for our community who happens to be gay, who happens to, you know, have a, maybe a different gender expression than we expect of women, and we love her. What does that mean about how Hmm. we embrace other people who are different? Because I think there's been a journey that Baylor fans, who I think are are wonderful people, but sometimes wonderful people have prejudices, and they have to face those prejudices and say, hey, we love this person. We love who she is. She brought great glory to our university. We know what a sweet person she is. She also happens to be gay. And she happens to have a gender expression that's that's different than maybe we think women are supposed to dress or look, and we love her for it. How does that change how they go forward in their lives and how they deal with people? That's how change comes in society. We know that, Brenda. We've seen that in our lifetimes. Sometimes people have to have somebody they love individually mm-hmm. to open up their hearts, to realize that prejudice and trying to force people to be somebody that they're not, that that's really painful and bad, not just for those people, but for society in general. Brittany is breaking through these barriers. She's brave enough to talk about it. She's brave enough to put herself out there. And so the lessons that are learned from that are going to be learned, not just by the young people around her. It's going to be by older people. People are going to have to stop and say, wait a minute. Hmm, let me think about this. Let me think about how I go forward in my life and how I treat people and how, what some of my personal philosophies might have been challenged now. And that's a wonderful thing to me. It's a wonderful yes, it thing is. that Brittany's doing. She's going to do more than just impact the basketball court. She's going to mm-hmm. impact people's hearts. Yep. And that's really cool. Wow. Just 
Wow. So well said. And just to tack on to that, something you said earlier about, you know, the spectrum of, um, you know, Skylar Diggins in some ways being the, the it girl and the picture of femininity. Uh, yeah. You know. And she's totally okay with that. And, right. and good for her. That is who she is. Well, and, and my point is, isn't that what feminism is about yeah absolutely it's what humanism is about (laughs) you know when you think about it yes that all people should be able to express themselves as they wish and the the judgment that comes forth from so many angles is something that we need to put in the past and that people I, i i can't imagine saying it better than you have uh as far as how how sports and how Brittany Griner and maybe this generation of young women can really change the world. And I, I see it happening and it's, it's great to see. Any- we've seen it in, we've seen it in sports. I, I will say this real quickly. We've seen sports do this. It's one of the beauties of sports that we've seen sports break down racial barriers. Right. You know, 50 years ago you had universities that couldn't imagine, you had people at universities who couldn't imagine cheering for a black person. They didn't want black people in their school. That was not that long ago. Now that seems ridiculous, right? It mm-hmm. seems unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. seems inhuman. But it, it existed in our society. Those barriers were broken down where people suddenly had to look inside the, their, their soul and say, wait a minute, if I'm going to cheer, I'm so happy that this guy is scoring a touchdown from my university makes me happy. Don't I have to, doesn't I have to change how I look at, at life mm-hmm. and people around me? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with women's sports. Women's sports has broken down those barriers of saying, uh, you know, both with how people look at women, how people look at gay people and how people look at people who express themselves different gender wise. If you watch the draft, you saw the girly girls. Great for them. They love he heals and they they love it. That's how they express themselves. And then you saw people who express themselves differently. All of those people were dressed as they're comfortable as human beings. Mm-hmm. And all of them, you know, to me, are beautiful because they those people all looked comfortable. Nobody looked like, oh my god, I'm wearing this dress and I hate it and this isn't me. So they didn't feel like they had to. And then nobody, you know, conversely, nobody who really would have wanted to be wearing a dress was like, oh, gosh, I've got to wear something I don't, you know, really want to, and this isn't me. Everybody dressed as they were comfortable. Hmm. And to me, that's a big, big thing Mm -hmm. for you to feel like you can be who you are Mm -hmm. and that it's okay. You know, there's no one definition of what it's like to be a girl dressing up. You know, there isn't. Boy, I thought Lasia Clarendon looked terrific. She was wearing a suit. She looked comfortable. She looked great. And I thought Skylar Diggins looked terrific. And she was wearing what she was comfortable in. Um, it's, it's, those are great barriers to be broken down and that needed to be broken down. Absolutely. Well, great stuff. We, uh, we've gone longer on this show than we typically do, but uh, I, I hope that everybody listening has enjoyed it as much as, as we have. And I hope this, dis- this starts uh, more discussions and continues discussions about things that really 
need to be talked about and uh, celebrate the college women's basketball season that was and looking ahead to the WNBA and other women's sports uh, coming up this summer. We'll be here with Women's Sports Central. We hope you'll be with us as well. On behalf of Michelle Vopel, I'm Brenda Van Lingen. Go out and have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you.